please turn off your cell phones and um, welcome before Lip, Professor Paul Lips back for the third in our four-part Creating a Nation lunch program. Thank you. Um, there is a sheet handed out. Um, it's a correction of the one that appears in the booklet. And uh, even this one's got one or two mistakes, but it's uh, easier to read. Um, it's an interesting sheet um, because the first part is a story of Michal Avera Samuel, who's a well-known Ethiopian activist. And she, at the beginning of that text, says um, some very, very tough things, which I'll be talking about in terms of what happened to the Ethiopians in Israel. The second part of the text there is by uh, Professor Tamar Herman. Um, she is one of the better known anthropologists and sociologists in Israel. And it's an interesting text just by virtue of the fact that she looks at the challenge facing the Ethiopians in a different way from most other experts. And she, as you'll see as you look through in the very last point, she maintains that the Ethiopians also have a responsibility in improving their position. And I'll try and, in my presentation, work on the, the various components. You'll see that the bibliography is quite long. Just something about information on the Ethiopians. There are more words written per capita about the Ethiopians than any other group in Israel. So they are a tremendously studied group great deal written about them. So they very much on the focus of Israeli society uh, until today. So just a little bit about the background of the Ethiopian people. One of the issues uh, which makes the Ethiopians and the Russians, by the way, the people who I'll be speaking about uh, next week, as distinct from the Holocaust survivors and the Yemenites, is that in the case of the Holocaust survivors and the Yemenites, there was no question about their Judaism. They were Jews. When you come to the Ethiopians and the Russian speakers, the situation changes dramatically. And in both of these two latter groups, the question of Jewish definition has hit the headlines in different ways. You'll see it's a very different approach. For many reasons, one of which is that the rabbinate in Israel, and I'm sure many of you are aware of it, has become much stronger as the years go by. In the 1940s and 1950s, even into the 1960s, the chief rabbinate, which is the controlling body of the official uh, civil service, the rabbinate is a civil service paid by the Israeli government, the, um, the chief rabbinate has become much stronger, much more involved, in a wide range of issues, including the who is a Jew issue, which is extremely controversial in Israel and out of Israel, uh, as well as the what is a very profitable business in Israel, and that's the kashrut business. Uh, if you want to make money, go into the kashrut business. By the way, it's not unusual. If you look at the New York Jewish community at the end of the 19th century, you'll find that the rabbinate was more interested in kosher food than anything else because they got a, a pretty good percentage of it. So it's, it's, a, it's a big world, this whole serious world of, of um, funding of Jewish institutions and all that is important. Now let's try and understand the Ethiopians' language. Um, many people unfortunately still use the time falashas. Falashas is not a good word to use although you'll find it in sources until today. Falasha means stranger or wanderer or even more important, landless. Now, we're talking about African society here. So in African society, tribal groups who are often in tremendous tension with other tribal groups take the question of what is their land very seriously. Now, it's pre-nationalism that we're talking about, so it isn't like the modern state when a land is defined by international borders. In those days, it was where the tribe was strong. And here you have a group, which is really just about the only group in Ethiopia, which is considered by the majority population, 
most of whom are Christians, as being a landless group. And that has a tremendous impact. Right from the very early period, the fact that the word falasha, the, the, the landless person, the wanderer, the stranger, was used by local society, pushed the Ethiopians to work out a mechanism of self-survival. And, we'll and I'll be speaking today about the mechanisms that the Ethiopians, that the better Israel, which is the nicer term, people of Israel, people of Israel the, the tribe of Israel, the belongers of Israel, um, we'll see how they developed their mechanism of survival. Question which Jews have asked right through history. The challenge of who the Ethiopians are is an issue which has tremendous influence because that would validate their Judaism. So some people aren't so interested. Uh, Brenda and I come from Litvak, Lithuanian backgrounds. You know, I don't think we're so concerned about what happened five, six generations ago. We might be interested for family reasons. But it's really not a survival issue. In the case of the Ethiopians, what I'm going to discuss now is very important. Because this justifies their being Jewish. And if they hadn't thought it important, although they knew it in Ethiopia, they thought when they came to Israel, it would be obvious. For thousands of years, they've called themselves Jewish. And so it was a strange experience for them in coming to Israel that they were going to have to try and re-strengthen their history. And history is a very difficult issue when it's not written down. Folklorish history is problematic. The first period where there's their source is that in Kings and Chronicles, one reads about the union of King Solomon and Queen of Sheba. That's, that's the first stage of their legitimation. Now, it's very hard to take a biblical source and to prove that it is actually your heritage. You know, biblical sources are used to a tremendous extent in Israel. And it's easier when you have a biblical source and you have a place. When you have a particular physical place in the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, then somehow or other the text, the biblical text and the land can be justified. You can see artifacts there which make sense and can be related to biblical or second temple uh, uh, written text. Much harder when you're talking about people. But anyway, that's the kind of start off of the issue. Then the second issue is that they're the lost tribe of Dan. Once again, they, it's believed. They definitely believe it. And many sources would indicate that it could well be. But ancient sources uh, are sometimes uh, very, very uh, difficult. The um, third stage is essentially the stage which the, uh, the Gaonim, the wise um, uh, people of uh, Middle Ages Spain. We all know that the Spanish religious leaders were extremely powerful. We know of Rambam and Ramban and Ibn Ezra, and you can go on for another 20 well-known sources. What happens in the Middle Age period with Spain, they were looking at this issue also. Very concerned about it. We know, by the way, Rambam looks very, very closely, Maimonides looks very, very closely at the origin of Jews in different parts of the world. He moved from Spain to North Africa to eventually ending up in, uh, in Egypt. And he's, his Jewish world is a broad world. The problem with the Spanish sources is that they divide it in terms of whether the Ethiopian people, the better Israel, are really Jews or not. And you know, in Jewish, contemporary Jewish life, like so much, whether we take Beit Hillel or Beit Shammai or any of the other possibilities, it depends on what you believe in. And so therefore, when many, many centuries later, the Ethiopians arrive in Israel, there are those people who take those sources, for example, Ibn Ezra, who says they weren't Jews, and there are those people who take other, a wide range of other sources who said they are Jews. The point I'm making is that the controversy already begins to exist somewhere in the Middle Ages. 
11th, 12th centuries, this argument of who's who that comes about. Now, we have to put in breakfast something very difficult. And I didn't come, Ari didn't invite me to come here for a month to make you happy. Bring a comedian. I try and be a comedian, I'm not very good. But the issue is, would this be the same if those people had a different skin color? Now, this is very unpopular to say. But we, we're, we're for honesty here. Otherwise, you people wouldn't be here. And therefore, there's this feeling among those of us in Israel today. When we ask some of these questions, is it always, would it always be the same with the other groups if they were Ashkenazi kind of people? Now, the Yemenites, for example, had no problem because they had texts and they were deeply embedded and they were kind of vaguely understood. Yeah, there's this other question out there which we can deny as much as we want, but the truth is somewhere or other, it's over there. What was the problem of the Ethiopians? Because they were the landless people, we begin to see a level of anti-Semitism pretty much from the 16th century. And the anti-Semitism appears, appears in a vast range of realms. Firstly, because they were the Falashas, they couldn't own the land where they were living. And so they're beginning to experience a situation of being pushed out, not quite knowing where they were going to end up. The other problem which we feel from the 16th century, and this carries on right till the 19th century, are Christian missionaries. Christian missionaries in Africa have been very, very active, historically speaking, right through the whole of Africa, from South Africa, Cape Town in South Africa, up to the Copt groups in, in Egypt, right over to West Africa, for an extended period of time, Christian missionaries coming from Europe, England, France, Germany, uh, Portugal, places like that, Spain, certainly, they were going to various parts of Africa, trying to convert the African population. Why were they so keen to convert the Africans? Because the Africans kind of did these, had these strange activities, strange festivals, which for some other Christianity looked at and said, we really have to civilize these people. Christianity isn't just about a religion. It's about bringing the Western civilization to, the, to, the, uh, to those somewhat indigenous natives, and I won't use some of the words which they were using. The third problem that the Ethiopians faced is they weren't allowed to have all the physical occupations that they were. They couldn't do what they want. There was a, a legislation, behave, societal legislation, which is sometimes stronger than legal legislation, so to speak, was that they couldn't have carry out certain uh, activities, and all they could do were the low-status occupations, changes through history, but whatever the kind of the, the lower classes, kind of somewhat like the Indian caste system, some of it sort of rings a bell, that we, what we know from that, is, uh, is what happened. And there are also cases when the Falashas were sold into slavery. Pretty bad life. And this carries on for hundreds of years. Marginal group. How do you survive when you're in that situation? Here comes an interesting twist on history. The survival of the Jewish people would be enough for uh, Ari, a lect, do you want to expert survival of the Jewish people? 32 lectures, one month in Orange County. <laughs> it's, it's not me. The survival of the Jewish people is an amazing, amazing, fascinating topic, which ranges from assimilation, Germany, 1930s, just as one case study. You know what's going on. Being Jewish isn't a good idea. Let's try and become Catholic or Protestant or whatever area we're coming from in Germany. It's a survival mechanism. Totally understandable, by the way. I'm the last one to criticize. People who want to survive should survive. The Falashas, sorry, I say it also. The Beta Israel, on the other hand, 
went in the exact opposite direction. They said our survival is becoming somewhat similar in their context to the Haredim of today. Close yourself in. Establish a boundary around you. Ensure that the other options that some people might be thinking of will not happen. Remember, we're talking about a very small group of people. The uh, Beti Israel are a small percentage of Ethiopian society. We don't have the exact figures, but very small percentage. So they go the opposite direction. And they start to emphasize ritual laws, particularly with the women. And they are very, very powerful. Once again, I'm comparing it with the Haridim. Uh, I'm giving a lecture tonight on Jewishness in the Jewish state, where I'll be speaking about ritual norms of Haridim and modern Orthodox people. And you'll see they're not too different, but in a different format from the uh, Beta Yisrael. The Beta Yisrael, for example, had this idea that with the birth of a child, a male child, you're in an isolated hut for 80 days, long time, looked after by the local women, no men going into that arena. With the birth of a female child, you're in this isolated hut for 40 days. So these are very strong messages of survival, because you can take halacha, you can take law, Jewish law, and you can adapt it. It's an adaptable force. But the better Israel go one step further. And this is quite remarkable. They decide that if you are touched by a Christian, or if you by mistake go into a Christian house, you are then impure. And you have to go the equivalent of a mikvah. You see, this is decided not by the outside group, but by the sensitive inner group. It's an interesting phenomenon, totally different from trying to assimilate. Now, they could have assimilated because they have similar physical features to the wider Ethiopian community. So it's not one of those things that they look slightly different, they even dress slightly different, no. But they physically decide to close themselves off, to develop a religious language, ge'ez, which is people who speak Amharic, which is the national language, can pretty much understand ge'ez, but it's a different kind of language at the same time. Uh, there's a place in, in Jerusalem where they have writings in Amharic and in ge'ez, and you can see the letters are absolutely different. So this is what the Ethiopians are doing, the Ethiopian Jews are doing, isolating themselves as a mechanism of survival. The change comes about very recently, 1868. In 1868, the French developed an, a fascinating organization, which is not well known, and it should be known better, called the Alliance Israelite Française, the French Alliance, which is a major educational program developed by French modernist Jews who felt that Jewish survival in North African and Middle Eastern countries, up to Ethiopia as well, would only be possible when you actually become a modern, acculturated French person. Okay, the French regarded themselves as the creme de la creme, different Europeans at different times saw themselves as creme de la creme. The French certainly did it. And therefore, the French sent two people. The first was Joseph Halevi, who was a professor of Gez, of the language Gez, at the Sorbonne University. And a few years later, many, quite a lot later, in 904, Jacques Fatulovich, an amazing man, French man, goes out on 11 occasions to the uh, better Israel, who are living in isolated villages in Gondar and Tigray provinces, two provinces of this very, very rural country, Ethiopia, and starts to develop a relationship with them. 
Now imagine what this does to the better Israel. They've been isolated for centuries. No friends. No one on their side. And you speak and you look at Ethiopian sources until today and they'll all say exactly the same. We were alone. So much so that when they first saw white Jews, they were convinced that they were Christian missionaries because there are no Jews in the world except them. And so Jacques Fatilovich comes in and he has to convince them that he's actually Jewish. He's an Ashkenazi Jew. And he does it. He knows texts. Um, Halevi before him had already indicated that there were French people who knew uh, Gez. And then starts a fascinating slow progress where Fatilovich slowly manages to convince some of the young Ethiopian males to learn a little bit about Zionism. And without going through the small events, nitty-gritty little events of each stage, slowly but surely in the 1920s and 30s, a few young Ethiopian males, young men, arrive in, in Palestine, as it was, Eretz Israel, and stay there for a few months, and then go back, and pass the word on to their own people back in Ethiopia. Now, the reports show us that, by the way, just in terms of a source, uh, the person who's been very important for us in knowledge is Dr. Ruth, the famous Dr. Ruth. She wrote a book with a friend of mine, Steve Kaplan, on some of these ideas. And Dr. Ruth, who's a very creative kind of person, um, she, she kind of speaks about the, the amazing situation of, of um, uh, tradition, how tradition is passed from word to mouth. Uh, she's always been interested in, in anthropology. So um, she was, she's been talking about this kind of situation. And uh, just to give two cases, in, as, as a result of the financial assistance of Baron de Rothschild, in, in, uh, two boys were sent to Jerusalem, and in 1923, a small school was set up in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, um, teaching the boys that there are Jews in the world, fighting the money from Baron de Rothschild was being transferred to Ethiopia, and moving to the time when the State of Israel was created, in the early 50s and 60s, 27 young people were sent on Youth Aliyah. I'm sure if you know Youth Aliyah, a big, big project where young people were brought to, to Israel. Um, they came to a youth village in, in, in Israel and um, uh, then they went back to their country. The problem starts. When they came there, this, these 27 youngsters, the chief rabbinate in Israel didn't accept them as Jews, but didn't make a big fuss. 23 kids going to a youth village, a small little youth village, middle of Israel, go back home, so what? But they hadn't yet accepted. And the story, in a sense, stops then. Until there's an amazing event of history, which doesn't make sense when you understand Israeli religious politics. In 1973, an extremely conservative Sephardi rabbi, who becomes the chief Sephardi rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Avadia Yosef, decides that they are Jews. And this is political power. If anyone thinks the prime minister is important in Israel, you've got it wrong. If you want to know where some of the most intricate political events of Israel are decided, it's within the rabbinic authorities because they've got a lot of loyal supporters. And the loyal supporters of the chief rabbinate don't say I'll vote for party ABC, whichever I want. You, you, it's, you're dictated, you're told. If you're Sephardi, you vote for Shas. If you're Ashkenazi, you vote for, for Yaduta Torah, the, the Ashkenazi party. But Rabbi Avadia Yosef makes an amazing decision. They are Jews. Many rabbis, from 1973 until today, do not accept that decision. 
Anyway, as far as the Ethiopians are concerned, we know rabbis, the situation in Ethiopia gets very problematic. Um, the American government, and by the way, uh, Jimmy Carter, to say in his favor, pressurized the, pressurized the Americans involved in the project to, in, to start the process of getting Ethiopians out of Ethiopia because the civil war had developed. Problematic civil war. How do you get the Ethiopians out? You get the Ethiopians out by either flying them out, but you can't fly into Ethiopia, except in two particular cases when that did happen. You start a walk, an ongoing, very difficult trek for people who had lived in villages to Sudan, where many, many lives were lost on the way. And when they got to Sudan, the Sudanian government, uh, Numeri was the president at that time, Numeri is being bribed with a tremendous amount of money. Some figures say more than $100 uh, million, which is a lot of money in all situations, certainly in that uh, part of the world. And what's beginning to be realized that you can't do it through Sudan. That means the loss of life, the situation in the, um, in, in the uh, refugee camps of Sudan was so terrible. And horrible things were happening to people there. So it's eventually decided that what you have to do is that you have to get to, to Addis Ababa. There's a very, very short period before the rebel forces take over the city. Israel and American Jewish organizations hear about this. And this brings the first of the two famous operations, Operation Moses, in uh, uh, 1983 and Operation Solomon in 1991. The first operation brings in 8,000 people. The second operation uh, brings in approximately 14,000. Now comes the problem. I've always said many countries like immigration but don't like immigrants. Now this story is quite amazing. Just let me put myself, I'm, I'm lecturing at uh, Tel Aviv University, and the head of the department calls me to speak to me one day, and he says, look, you, you've got a student um, who's hardly been attending your class. And I look at the attendance list, and I said, hardly see him. I can't even remember who he is. So this is very Israeli. I don't know, how, I can't imagine happening in any other country. So the head of the department says, look, this guy is doing something important for us. Make sure that he passes the course. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine in any respectable part of the world being told that? So I'm sure if you're just a total newcomer, you say, why? We all know what it's about. These things happen because somewhere the Jews in the world need help. Tel Aviv University, which has a large number of, because it's Middle East studies, has a large number of people in, involved in the army and intelligence units and other units. Look, the guy passed, just. <laughs> I can't remember who he is, and I couldn't remember then. It's the way of the world. This guy, I afterwards found out, was one of the most active people in finding some of these Ethiopians in, in Sudan and other parts of the world. Some had been sent to Djibouti on the coast uh, in, in Eritrea. These guys were doing it. These people were doing it, men and women. These men and women were doing it, and this is really uh, what, um, what brought them in. Um, the... Issues are not easy. The lack of understanding of, by Israeli society of who the Ethiopians was, was so great. You see, when the Russians came in the 1990s, one million, you knew who they were. People had been to Russia. People had helped Russians 
uh, Russian Jews to try and get out of the Russian-speaking countries. You had an idea. You had earlier generations of people from Russian-speaking background. Not so with the Ethiopians. You don't know who they are. Absolutely no understanding. And here, through lack of knowledge, and I think, and it worries me, through lack of desire to understand by certain authorities, maybe even individuals as well, the Ethiopian Jews, better Israel, begin to find themselves in a very harsh reality. Who are they? They're villagers. They're rural people. They are convinced that they're the genuine Jews. And they come and tell the rabbinic authorities that they're not the genuine rabbis. See, the Ethiopians have their own rabbis, the Kes, K-E-S. They're their rabbis. Thousands of years, the Kesim have led them. The Kesim come to Israel. Now remember, Ethiopian Jews are pre-rabbinic Jews. They don't go through a lot of the Chagim that we go through. Haven't been through the rabbinic period. And so they come to the rabbis, post-rabbinic rabbis, and tell those post-rabbinic rabbis, we're the genuine Jews. And the Israeli rabbinate says, but tell us what you know. And they go through a whole lot of Chagim. Know nothing. So you have to go and do some restudying. For these village elders, for those of you who understand traditional African society, no one tells the village elder that they don't know what they're supposed to know. They've, they've kept the people alive for hundreds of years. So, so starts a long process of a feeling of marginalization by the, uh, by the Ethiopians. To take just a few of the very, very difficult uh, situations are the following. Firstly, the blood issue. The fear that HIV uh, positive is uh, prevalent in Africa is well understood. Israelis, by the way, studying to Af flying to Africa, spending time in Africa, would come back and there would be come some investigation. Sometimes they would have to have their blood tested and so on and so forth. Now, what's the problem with the Ethiopians as far as the blood? In Ethiopian society, the greatest gift that you can give to anyone is to donate, to donate your blood. We know what blood donation is. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful act. Saves lives. But it's one of the many things that we do. Ethiopians have no money. Poverty-stricken society. It's not even like the Yemenites who came with their Sifre Torah, by the way. Because when the Ethiopians came to Israel on the two waves, and then there were smaller groups that came later, they came with nothing. Why? Because those LL planes had to be filled up Within minutes, they were brought on to the plane, and the plane went off. The rebel forces were coming. You didn't bring anything with you. In fact, all the seats were taken out of the planes. And the best news was we got one other Guinness Book of Records for most people put in a plane because there were no seats. It was unbelievable. You come from your rural background into this modern Israeli society, believing that you have kept Judaism alive all these years, confronted by a totally different kind of situation. By the way, Operation Moses and Operation Solomon were traumatic events because on both occasions, the speed with which the people had to be put on the planes brought about divided families. And numbers were put on children's foreheads, codes, numbers, to try and make sure that running onto the, onto the tarmac of Addis Ababa, and the planes were coming in and laying out, LL planes in and out and in and out, children were being divided by their parents. And I so remember one of my Ethiopian students, terrific guy, and he did quite well, uh, in society, 
he took upon himself the following job, his own initiative. He'd been in Israel about six or seven years. On his own initiative, what he did, he had, he had an automobile, he had a car, and wherever the Ethiopians were placed in different parts of Israel, he went there, took the names of the children and members of the family, went to the next center, absorption center, and slowly but surely brought the families together. A one-man job. Remember, there are not too many Israelis who know Amharic at that time. They're, they're more now, second-generation uh, Ethiopians. But in that time, they, they, you didn't have all that many people who knew Hebrew and, and Amharic. And Rachamim, this particular fellow, uh, did this job by himself. So it's on the, on the level. They're going through trauma. On the other hand, they're finding a, a kind of a society that isn't too caring for them. And there were odd little events. Uh, we were living in Jerusalem uh, at that time. We lived next to the Diplomat Hotel, which was one of the absorption centers. Uh, very interesting event. When the Ethiopians were put into an elevator for the first time in their lives, they were petrified. Just imagine. You've never been elevated before. No one tells you what it's about. The door closes in the elevator, and nothing indicates that the door is ever going to open. So, you have to start telling the people. And who tells them? Well, you haven't always got interpreters around. There was another event, which was kind of a bit lighter and a bit friendlier. Israeli society was initially fascinated, and I think most Israelis still feel very, very much for the Ethiopians, until today. The fact that some of the establishment figures have acted differently, I don't think is the voice of the average Israeli. Anyway, the Israeli, they arrived with no belongings, so there were announcements on the radio. A new group of Jews have arrived. No one knew who they were initially, okay? But a new group of Jews arrived with no clothes, nothing, no possessions. Israelis are generous. They've, we've all lived through the Shmata visit business for 2,000 generations. So they, we start getting clothes, and just next to us where the Diplomat Hotel was, there were so many clothes that there was a massive pile outside the hotel, and the, there were young guys there who were helping, and you brought a lot of clothes, and you didn't want all the clothes to go on the road, because cars were coming in with clothes. And so these young guys were throwing parcels up on the top. The announcement the next morning on Kol Yisrael, 7 a.m., is, it's wonderful that we're getting so many clothes, but in terms of shoes, please tie the laces together. <laughs> Because very, very quickly, as Brenda and I went out onto the streets of where we were living, we saw all these young Ethiopians, many of whom, by the way, had never worn shoes in their lives. You're talking about rural Africans. So not only was it very uncomfortable to put these things around your shoes, but they were totally different sizes and different colors and everything else. So at least there was some sort of attempt to create uh, some sort of order, which was uh, very, very nice. The Challenges, I'll just take a few more minutes. The, the challenges were tremendous as years went by. Where, what schools do you put them in? And because they didn't know Hebrew, and because the stereotype was that they don't know. You see, if you take an illiterate group of people, the kind of the obvious response, which we know is such a ludicrous response, is that they're not very clever. They, 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 they don't know words. They can't write. So sometimes they were put in schools that where with children with learning disabilities, as if they had learning disabilities, because they were, were not literate or, or sometimes semi-literate. There was tremendous problem on the gender issue. Uh, the mothers were horrified. Uh, mothers and fathers were horrified. By the way, in many cases, one-parent families. The loss of life in Sudan had been tremendous. So the, the, the surviving parent suddenly finds that the, the woman, I mean, remember, coming from a very pure, uh, purity-oriented 
kind of society, suddenly finding girls and boys are together in different uh, places. They, they came to, to Israel and they asked, where's the hut? Given birth, where's the hut? The people, there's a hut. Well, in the hotel, there's a room down there, so is that suitable? No, it's not quite the hut we were thinking of. Tremendous, tremendous misunderstanding. Misunderstanding, sometimes you just don't know. Someone, no one had done the national uh, education program. The Ethiopian voyage has been tough. <coughs> Let me tell you where some good things are happening. Because even out of tough situation, there are good things that happen also. There is slowly but surely clear signs of Ethiopian upward mobility. It's there. There are some Ethiopian doctors. Very important. We have Ethiopian army officers. By the way, the Ethiopians are tough. You know how Ethiopians can run. Ethiopians are tough when they go into the army. For those who go into the units and stay in the army, they're very, very positive soldiers. Unfortunately, the dropout rate of Ethiopians is the highest. And unfortunately, the suicide rate of the Ethiopians is the highest, speaking about group behavior, because they're going through such traumatized situations. But when it works, it works very well. A program was developed for about seven lawyers. Just let me tell you how things work, how difficult it is. Seven lawyers, they got through. Special program developed in the middle of the country at a college to get these Ethiopians to become lawyers. Initially, at the end of their legal training, where the head of the program went to some office, uh, uh, big law offices in Tel Aviv, and said, look, we want you to take it for their articles. Is that what you call it in law? You, you have to, after you got your degree, you have to go and sit in a law office for a period of time. I can't think of the word in English. Then at least um, these law officers said no initially. And the head of the if the open program said, we've, we, these guys have got through their, their, law, their law studies. They said, no, the Ethiopians are too nice. <laughs> Tough. The Ethiopians are perceived as soft, kind of excessively law-abiding. By the way, in, in Israel, law-abiding is an insult. <laughs> so we have to understand the context of, of what we're talking about. So... They, they, they also excessively respectful of authority. So most people argue with the policeman. They thought the policeman, you have to listen to the policeman. Israelis don't understand that kind of behavior. So you have these kind of situations. But there are other things where things are getting better. Um, there's some very, very good um, TV announcers uh, and interviewers. Um, there are quite a few, I think there have been five altogether, five Ethiopian members of Knesset, which is very important. There's been, uh, in Israel, uh, being Israel, uh, there have been some Ethiopian women who've won various beauty contests. So all these kind of things together are the tip of the iceberg. They're doing better in university than they used to. Uh, and what Israel did was very, very good in the sense they established a pre-academic year at the various universities, which was a kind of catch-up program. Catch up, 12 years. And you went to this pre-academic year, and the pre-academic year would get you into regular studies. The figure is quite high. It's something about 17 or 18 percent of Ethiopians were getting into university as a result of the pre-academic program. So things, is, things are getting better. Things are slowly, surely getting better until the last summer, where some of us were getting very relaxed about it, and some of us were saying, you know, your interests are directed in other ideas. A big, big blow up after the killing of an Ethiopian uh, uh, young man uh, as a result of excessive violence by the police. Now, there have been some other cases before. It wasn't in a vacuum. And, but this blew up the society. And there was a demonstration in the middle of the Tel Aviv which was violent, abs absolutely violent. It shows that there's a whole generation of marginalized youth 
who have had absolutely no contact with wider Israeli society. Not always because of blaming an official, the government or municipalities, but the inability of Ethiopian immigrants coming to Israel. They are put in absorption centers. The idea of the absorption center is that stay there two, three years maximum, and then you go out into the wider society. But the coping mechanisms of many of the Ethiopians that after two, three years, they're not able to go into the outside community to buy an apartment in Israel, which you know, can drive anyone who's almost sane mad. So here you have the situation which is very difficult, and therefore they stayed in isolation. There's a place in Jerusalem, I don't know if any of you have been to that absorption center, place in Jerusalem, lovely area, Mavaseretzion, and there's an absorption center where many of them were stuck in that absorption center with certain amount of interaction with the local people, but minimal. So you have the situation of the the swell, this groundswell of frustrated youngsters, particularly young males, by the way, because we're talking about a society where the young males were going to be the leaders of the society and they were feeling that they had no, no move forward. Um, the, the, the situation uh, of the demonstration was horrendous, very painful. And if there was any good news in it, it brought the issue to the forefront again. And that's sometimes very good. Sometimes you have issues in societies, but if you don't demonstrate, you don't know it. You can, good people. They're just to end off with one or two other issues. Firstly, a challenge, and then something that's hopeful. Falashmura. Falashmura are people who claim, and I'm sure in many cases it's true, were Jews but were forced to become Christians as a result of Christian missionary pressure. Many of them have the Eastern Church cross Yeah. Many of them have family members who are recognized Jews. But the Falashmura call themselves, we are members of the Jewish people, but our religion is Christianity. Not an easy issue. So the Falashmura issue is very, very problematic. Um, David Breakstone, one of the heads of the Jewish Agency, wrote an, an article a little while ago saying that there are people in the uh, Israeli uh, organized camp in Addis Ababa who've been there for 20 years waiting to make Aliyah, but they're not defined as Jewish. And Israel accepts people essentially by the law of return. They don't belong to the caste. They, they define Christians. They, they're living within their Christian environment. But their families in Israel want them to belong. But there's much more difficult than that. Because there are um, better Israel who don't want them to come to Israel. Because it says as soon as they come to Israel, the rest of Israeli society are going to say, we're not Jewish. And we are Jewish. So within Beta Yisrael itself, there are these deep divisions on where the Falashmura should be or shouldn't be. By the way, it's a whole set of literature by itself. What are we doing which is good? We have certain, we have a memorial site on Mount, on Mount Herzl. Unfortunately, many people who go to Mount Herzl don't go to the, this particular site. It's a large area. Mount Herzl is filled with graves. And Herzl himself is buried there and the leaders. And... But there's an, a nice area there, which is excellent. Nice, green, well-constructed area with huts. And the huts give the story for kids in very, very nice language. And it's, it's kind of interesting because you sit at the entrance of the hut on a little uh, piece, a little stone, so it's a nice level for kids. And there you read the story of the Ethiopian people in the words of different, of different uh, members. The, the story of the mother, the story of the case, a story of someone who, uh, Israeli who met the, the Ethiopians, very, very nicely set up. There's also national holidays, particularly 
the national holiday of arriving in Eretz Israel once a year, held there and held around the country. So there's national recognition of it. Um, there's a, um, a, a um, at, at Beit HaTfusot, the museum of the, the history of the Jewish people, until a short time ago, there was an unbelievably good exhibit of six documentaries which give you the personal story of six families in Israel. Some of them are fantastic. Some of them have succeeded. They're living in the nice areas. They, they're, they're traveling around the world. All the things of comfortable middle class, and some of them are very sad. And that's the reality of Beta Israel. The only country in the world that has ever willingly accepted black people is Israel. But it's been a tough journey. Thank you very much. Please, yeah. Uh, in earlier times, let's say 19th century or before, in Ethiopia, among the various Jewish villages, were there any umbrella organizations that connected them? There was one very effective American organization. Um, can't quite remember the full, full terminology of them, but they were definitely there. One, one American organization was very, very involved in it. Uh, one big mistake. They told the Falashmura that if they move from their villages to Ethiopia, they'll then be able to make Aliyah. Why did they say that? Because the Israeli government said it. So Americans believe what the Israeli government says. Israelis don't believe. So the point is that, the, yes, there were American organizations. Was you talking about American organizations? Did I get your question? Oh, from the different villages, sorry. I, I, for some reason, I, was, I misunderstood. Um, it depended, very much depended. So, uh, they kind of knew each other, but, but distances are great. Gonda province and Tigra province is very large. I'm sorry, I misunderstood. So, so not always, not always. When the word got out that people were moving to Israel, then there were contacts. But otherwise, they lived pretty, some of them pretty isolated areas. By the way, you speak to the Ethiopians, uh, and they say, you know, we don't know those people because they lived uh, 100 miles away, which for them is, is, is tremendously far, very far. Yeah, please. What kind of compensation did the Israeli government give to the women who were um, sterilized without, without their knowledge and consent? Uh, what compensation does the... Israeli government give to women who were sterilized. I've heard the story, but to be honest, I don't know. I have no idea at all. You know, one of the things are there are a lot of bits of information which go around society, and sometimes you don't know if it's true or not true. It's not clear. It's not clear. It's not always clear. On this particular issue, I hear it. I have no, no information just to know that I have heard of it and nothing more that I can say would be useful. Yeah. How does the Red Sea dive operation fit into the timeline and what happened? The Red Sea? Well, the, the original biblical Red Sea? Oh, secret operation. Why? Well, I'm, not, I'm not hearing well. Yeah. Oh, wait, really? <laughs> Don't know. I know it happened. I know it happened. Sorry, I'm getting an echo all the time. Uh, I know it happened. Um, I don't know how, there were, let me just say one thing about that. There were masses of different activities to get them to Israel. All these little groups coming around in one place or the other. I know we, I think we spoke about it some time ago. So once again, I, I don't know the size of it, but masses. You see, what happens in these situations is things are happening all the time, but you have absolutely no 
understanding of how big it is until years later the information gets published. You know, because although we have secrets which are told, until you, you get ver verification of the information, it's very hard to know. So, you know, the, I, I've heard many, many different kind of stories of how they came. Sometimes they went, but there, there's a certain time that uh, Ethiopians went through Paris because the Arab countries didn't want to hear that they were going to Israel. Sudan's an Arab country. So you have that particular route, many different routes. So I'm, I'm not sure of all of them. Yeah. Uh, the remaining Ethiopian Jews, um, I understand that their the remnant remaining is small. Are they uh, mainly the Falashmur, the disputed ones? Yeah. So those who remain at Addis Abeba from what David Breakstone, this particular person who wrote this last report, are almost totally Falashmur. That means those who can prove that they have Jewish origins have been essentially accepted. Uh, the last thousand came in the last year or something. Apparently there's something like 8,000 Falashmura who are still remaining, remaining in Addis Ababa. So that's kind of more or less the figure. So some people say bring the 8,000, it's not such a big deal. And on the other hand, it's got other implications. So, you know, it's, it's, one can't always criticize the government because some of the issues are much more complex than one uh, might think. I think we've just got a time for perhaps one more question. Um, everyone that has come, you know, they didn't have education in their homeland of Ethiopia, and everyone isn't a scholar. So what is Israel doing in preparation for those that really do want to come, whether they are Felishmore or, um, you know, from my knowledge, they are practicing rituals of Judaism, to help them when they get there, as opposed to some of the negativity of they don't have a skill, they don't have the language. So, so the position is that pretty much the Israeli government wants to stop the Aliyah process at the moment. So they, the, the, the official government policy plan is not to bring any more over. Although there was a, a many, some time ago some sort of um, decision that more would be brought. But, but government, let me tell you about government decisions. Government decisions change with governments. So what one government might have promised, the other government doesn't necessarily implement. So at the moment, as far as I know, there are absolutely no plans to bring the remaining plus minus 8,000 over. And therefore, the challenge really, although that's one issue, the challenge is really how to work in Israel. There, there's some good organizations, I haven't mentioned the point, and I must, and I'll end here. There's some very, very good organizations, good people who are working. Um, there's uh, the English Volunteers Organization in Israel, English Speakers Volunteer Organization, called Ezra, E-S-R-A, Ezra. They work in a remarkable way to help the Ethiopians. They work with them, they work through the municipality very close to where we live, Natanya, near Natanya. The Ezra organization is very active. They go into, they, by the way, a very, very successful program is taking Ethiopian students who've succeeded at university and giving them uh, grants to help the young Ethiopian children to get ahead. So it seems of all the programs that I've heard about, and there are a lot of different programs, a lot of good people out there working, it seems to be the most effective is when local Ethiopians help other Ethiopians to get ahead. Otherwise, it sometimes has a little bit of a kind of a sense of condescension, which is sensitive. So this is really what is happening, and those are some of the things that's going on. And I have to juxtapose the success with the shock of the summer uprising, which it was in a sense, which for many of us, myself absolutely, I thought things were better, I saw the demonstration, I realized that the problems still exist, and you know, that's what we have to say. Thank you. Um, so those of you who are with us in Israel in 2017 may remember that we had dinner with uh, Rabbi Sharon Shalom. Uh, I think he's the first or only Orthodox Ethiopian rabbi. He was uh, quite interesting, very funny, but had some very serious things to say. One of the things I want to do is go see them daven, because he talked about the difference of how they pray versus the Ashkenazi, and he had a very funny story about that. So I'd like to 
Maybe when we go back to Israel, we'll check that out. But the other thing is, if you don't think that CSP is in the news, you know, last week we talked about what was happening in Iran. This is the headline from uh, 23 hours ago. I don't know if you saw it. Do you want to read it out loud? Can you read it? Israel's chief rabbinate officially recognizes Ethiopian Bet Israel community as Jewish. It's what? What? It's from one day ago. One day. By the way, this is the basis. This is based on Rabbi Avada Yosef's decision in 1973. So this should have happened 1973. So I did see this. Thank you very much for mentioning it. It's become officially accepted now, which hopefully means that when the Ethiopians go to a rabbi, they won't have to go. They won't have to look for the good rabbis. They can go to any rabbi. And I hope this is going to be implemented. Thank you very much.